Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Tucker. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Thank you for having me, doctor. Doctor? Doctor. <laughs> okay, enough. Um, so you are at, uh, you're part of University of Georgia faculty. You are at the Tifton Station. Um, tell people where Tifton, Georgia is. Well, uh, as I like to tell most people, it's below the Nat line, um, and they don't know what that is either. <laughs> but I have learned significantly what that is since moving down here. Uh, we're about three hours south of Athens, um, Atlanta, that part of Georgia, um, and about an hour and a half or so south of Macon, where the Nat line is. Um, and so we're really close to the Florida border, and we're in the uh, coastal plain soil uh, and that, that type of area in very crop-heavy country uh, on the research station down here. Okay, and, and that research station includes a significant animal science component, which you've gotten much more involved in recently. <laughs> very much so. Um, so I am now the acting uh, research extension and instruction coordinator for the animal science department. Uh, on the UGA Tifton campus. Uh, we do have um, about 600 acres across the Tifton farm and the farm in Alapahal that are dedicated to uh, beef nutrition and forage management research. Uh, and so we, we have a significant area, uh, but it takes a lot of area to feed a lot of cattle, so. And Georgia's a fairly large beef state, is it not? Very much so. Uh, there is actually cattle production in every county within the state of Georgia. So uh, within the state of Georgia, there are uh, there's cattle in every single county, and there's 159 counties in Georgia. Uh, so we do have a significant footprint uh, across the state uh, when it comes to cattle and livestock production. So what county is Atlanta? Is that Fulton? Yeah, well, it's a lot of them now. <laughs> okay. Awesome encompass several counties. So yes, but there's cattle in Atlanta and around Atlanta in that region. I actually work with some, some top producers around there. Uh, they are getting crowded out a little bit, but uh, they're, they're staking their claim. So <laughs> It's always interesting to think about urban cattle. Um, but if we're going to talk about local food, cattle, beef is one of those that's probably the most evenly dispersed across the United States. Oh, I would I would agree with that 100%. <laughs> okay. So you, let's see, but congratulations, by the way. Um, Thank you. On your success. Um, you grew up in South Central Kentucky, another state that has a fair number of cattle. And you grew up on a farm. So you were involved in crop and livestock as you were going through school, high school, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I grew up um, on a small beef cattle operation uh, in Tompkinsville. It's a very, very small town, about an hour southeast of Bowling Green uh, on the Tennessee-Kentucky border. Uh, so I like to tell people when I'm down here in Georgia that I came from the true cow country because uh, everywhere you look uh, in Kentucky, uh, when you're traveling through the state, you see a lot of cattle, uh, at least the area that I, that I have, happen to be from. Um, and so we actually had more of a diversified operation. Uh, we were definitely, I guess, part-time uh, farmers as my parents both had jobs in town. Um, but we did grow uh, registered Angus, had a registered Angus herd. I showed cattle growing up. Uh, we also had tobacco, uh, transitioned that into vegetable production uh, and high quality forages. So we kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. <laughs> and yet when you went to college, it was not with the idea of a lifetime spent in agriculture. 
<laughs> yes. So um, growing up on the farm, I, I didn't realize all of the positive, I guess, influences and benefits I was having. Uh, and I was just destined to do anything that had nothing to do with agriculture. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was a cheerleader, but I was all, also an FFA. I, I was very confused as a, as a, as a teenager. <laughs> Um, but I also had a pretty good gift for writing and arguing. And so uh, I was going the law school route. And uh, actually, my first degree is in political science. Uh, and I got a minor in agriculture um, because I had to have a minor. And I figured, you know, this might be easy enough. Uh, and so I, I minored in ag um, and went the, uh, was, was headed on the law school route. And this was at what university? Um, I started at Murray State University, and then I transitioned to Western Kentucky University. And actually, uh, my professor, at, while I was in undergrad, uh, I had a plant science professor, Dr. Byron Sloop, uh, and he is now with Corteva. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he really is one of the, I guess, people that just shot me on my forage trajectory. I know a lot of people give my dad credit uh, for a lot of my forage background, but it was actually uh, Dr. Slew, um, who I had a few classes with, and I said, you know, what if I came back and finished my degree in agriculture, and I specialized in ag law, and uh, he said, well, why don't you just get a master's, you know, and I was like, what's that? Why would I do that? Um, uh, but I enjoyed school. I was good at school, and I figured, you know, they're going to pay me, so why not? And, and so I started my master's with Dr. Slew. Uh, and then it came time to take the LSATs and start the application process again with law school. And all of a sudden, I realized that, you know, when I wasn't feeling like I was being forced to be out and do agriculture work growing up on the farm, but now it was my choice. Mm. Um, this was something I really uh, started to, to get into uh, and enjoy. And so I changed paths as I do many times uh, and uh, headed up towards getting my uh, PhD. So when when was Byron at Western? Um, so he was my advisor in, let's see, I graduated undergrad 05, so 06. Uh, and then he left and started working with, at the time, Dow AgroSciences uh, when I graduated in 07. Hmm. See, I learned things doing these interviews. Thank you. Um, okay. Now, one of the challenges for cattle producers, and I'm thinking cow-calf, and that's primarily what Georgia is, right, is cow-calf. Mm -hmm. So the production of calves that get shipped somewhere else to complete their cycle. Um, typically, what, Texas and Nebraska kind of location. Yeah. Um, but the big expense for cow-calf operation is, supplement, is feed costs. And a lot of that is feeding of hay, and a solution to that is having something grazable, right? But you live in South Georgia now. I mean, it never freezes there. You don't really have winter. So you just have grass growing all year round, right? Uh, we have something growing most of the year. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, so uh, it is, I guess it, it's a definitely a different uh, part of the world when we come down here. Uh, and I learned a lot. Uh, I came from, you know, the transition zone in Kentucky where we had a lot of fescue but we could also grow Bermuda grass. Where we're at down here, you're not growing fescue, at least not successfully. Um, and so we're definitely more warm season forage dominant. So that's gonna be Bermuda grass and Bahia grass. Um, and while they are very productive, uh, they, they lack a lot when it comes to the nutrition side of, of being able to meet the needs of a lot of our grazing livestock. Um, and so it does require a lot of input to get that plane of nutrition up for a lot of our cow-calf operators. Uh, but we can still graze for much of the year. Um, we figured out ways to provide supplementation with other forages, so creating mixtures, um, adding uh, one of my 
dominant things I'm researching right now is the addition of alfalfa to these Bermuda grass mixtures. And so we go from having a forage that we can use uh, only in the warm months, so four to five months out of the year, to roughly seven to eight months or even longer, depending on your management. And so it gets you a lot closer to that 365 days that everybody talks about wanting to graze year round. Uh, but, you know, we aren't always green down here. Um, and so there are going to be some of those challenges. Uh, but also from a cow-calf production standpoint, um, you know, we don't have the highest quality forages. But when we get into that winter month, you know, we can start growing annual ryegrass and some of these annual forages that really get that bump. Uh, that we're looking for, especially to get some growth on some of our, our calves. So we use that from a backgrounding option, uh, but we don't really finish as many, I guess, in this region that uh, that a lot of our producers are starting to, to look at. You know, when you look at transport costs of these animals all the way out west, and, and we see that cost of transport is increasing, you know, incrementally right now, um, you know, what are our opportunities uh, in this this part of the world where we don't have a lot of feedlots. Uh, we're not surrounded by corn production down here. You know, it's, I've got cotton and peanuts running out my ears down here, but we don't have a lot of corn. Um, and so, it, you know, there's, there's challenges as there are in any part of the world, but even though we're hot and don't get a lot of frost, um, we still have those alternative challenges because frost sometimes is a good thing. Hmm. Um, I remember, um, Dr. Ball taking me to uh, the Dr. Carver Museum and and seeing a pamphlet there on alfalfa in the South. So what happened between the time he was active and the time, you know, today that people think you can't grow alfalfa in the South? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot has happened. Um, so... You know, alfalfa was a dominant forage across the southeast and much of Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. It actually came over or some varieties came over and in, into the port of Savannah, Georgia. Uh, yeah, several, several years ago. Um, and so it was highly produced across the region. But there was a combination of things that started to occur, one being the alfalfa weevil uh, that came in and, and provided a lot of challenges uh, for producers. And at the time, we didn't have effective control options. We now can combat this and, you know, technology and research being as it is, we have definitely got that one kind of figured out. Um, but there were other disease and stressors that became, that began taking out our alfalfa stands. And all of this coincided with a time period where nitrogen sources uh, started to become very cheap. And so producers didn't need to rely on this legume product to provide the nitrogen to their system, they could do supplementary nitrogen uh, at a cheap cost or even sometimes cheaper than producing that alfalfa. And so quickly you saw the alfalfa stands just uh, leave, completely leave the Southeast. Uh, and so it almost became an anomaly if people were planting alfalfa, you know, it, it doesn't grow down here. Uh, there's they're obviously they're not using it. And so it's not growing in the area. Why would you try to use something like that? It didn't work in the past. Um, now, any of the work that we're doing, though, it's I always I like to joke with people that if we knew what the results would always be, they wouldn't call it research. They call it search. Right. So sometimes in a lot of the things that we do, especially in forage agriculture, it's uh, kind of revisiting old ideas with new technologies. Uh, and so with a lot of plant breeding work in developing alfalfa varieties, and a lot of those varieties are tested and developed right here in Tifton, uh, we are able to get those stronger, better forage varieties that can survive in our environment. And so why not start trying some of these technologies again? And, and that's where we're at uh, with our research now is, you know, People say it won't, and I say, why not? <laughs> and so yeah. that's what I do. So a, another difference between where you grew up and where you are now is the land looks a lot different. <laughs> like you can see further where you are now than you could where you grew up. Yes, we're, we're flatlanders down here. <laughs> um, well, uh, what, what is the fall line? Do you, is that a, something... 
you recognize, I remember people talking about the fall line in Georgia. Is that the same thing as the Nat line? <laughs> yes, it kind of, okay. it is. So, so <laughs> it's funny when we talk about Nats down here, especially this far South. Um, I remember when I interviewed, my husband tells me now, cause he's a local that um, there's two good days, good weather days a year in Tifton there's some time in October and they happened to know what those were. And they interviewed me on those two days <laughs> because it was amazing weather. It was just sunshiny, warm, great to be outside. And I, I had flown out of Kentucky that was dreary and rainy. So like they set this up perfect. I don't know how, but that's what they did. Um, but they kept asking me about gnats and how did I feel about gnats? And of course my experience in the past you know, gnats are when you have moldy food or, you know, a watermelon busted outside. And that's what those black flies are flying around the watermelon. So I was like, I'm good with gnats. I, I don't see what the problem is. Uh, but what it what it is, is the fault line or the gnat line, as people like to call, is the transition of the soil to the coastal plain. So from that Piedmont, um, a little bit clay or type soil to the coastal plain soils that we have, which are very sandy soils. And they're also the environment that the gnats uh, will grow and regenerate in. And so it, it all kind of falls around that Macon area. Uh, but you can definitely tell a difference. And, and in the summer, there's these, they don't bite or anything. They're just very annoying black gnats that, uh, yeah. that are associated with our, our sandy soil type. I uh, remember one, uh, it was a student competition that we ended up in. Uh, Mississippi, and it was in the summer out in the fields um, doing various things to do with weed science. And they served us barbecue, and and I got a plate with some coleslaw on it. And I looked down, and I said, "Oh, <laughs> celery seed!" <laughs> and the celery seed flew away. Um, <laughs> what are the opportunities first, and then the challenges? Um, that ruminant animal agriculture faces in Georgia and throughout the southeastern U.S. So I think, I, I, I guess the way you phrase it works out because it is twofold. You know, it's, it's a challenge as well as an opportunity. Uh, a lot of the challenges that we see um, just from the physiological uh, animal production uh, is heat stress. We get down in, in this part of the world and it gets hot. It gets very hot. And we provide shade and other things to allow these animals to cool themselves. But just like we are when we get hot in the summer, maybe we're not quite as productive uh, as we would like to be um, and, or we should be maybe sometimes. Um, and so we see that this has an impact on uh, our dairy animals, on their lactation, uh, on our beef animals, even on weight gain when we're trying to put some weight on these, these young steers. A lot of my work is stalker production. You know, and you get, you're still getting gains, but maybe you're not getting those gangbuster gains to, to take them straight to the market. Uh, and so there is a lag in the summertime um, here for these animals, but we also have opportunities to provide adjustments. We adjust their diet. And so we provide higher quality forages, maybe forages that have more uh, water holding capacity in them. So they, you know, they're getting a lot of the water to keep them cool. Instead of just having these warm season perennial grasses, we'll give them a, a sorghum sudan or a pearl millet or adding alfalfa into that mixture. And so that allows them to meet their physiological needs a little bit better. And so they're gonna perform better. Um, we actually have a lot of colleagues here at the university uh, that have done a lot of heat stress work. And so we're determining, you know, especially in the dairy industry, times of, times of the day to bring them in versus taking them out. What is the effect of milking early in the morning or adjusting your milking time uh, based on the, the cooling factor, if you use misters going into the barn versus misters going out. So there's a lot of interesting research that's going on to help us combat the challenge of heat stress. Um, I guess what coincides with that is the challenge of providing quality forages for much of the year. Uh, and extending the grazing season is not a new topic. Uh, I think I've heard about it my entire life, but it's definitely one of those goals that we are continuing to push towards and a very attainable goal. Um, I know it, it, in the past, it seemed like this anomaly uh, that people could limit their hay feeding. 
but now we actually see with the you know the push or the niche market of grass produced you know all the way to grass finished products you know people are trying to push that limit and figure out well what combination of forages can I put together to meet these needs and so again it's a challenge because there are times in the year where we don't have the highest quality forage or we don't have an abundance of forage available, but it's an opportunity to figure out what those are that really fit into that mix. And a lot of the work that we're doing here at Tifton, like I mentioned, we're in the coastal plain soils and coastal plain soils stretch. You know, it's not just a Georgia thing. They stretch all the way out to Texas. So the work that we're doing is very applicable across the Southeast, uh, even if it happens to be in a tiny little town with a lot of gnats. So (laughs) it works out pretty good for us. So coastal plain would be sandy soils, um, the, the, the fertility, the not much water holding capacity, um, but deep. Mm-hmm. Right. Very much so. Uh, you know, again, I came from Kentucky. We had the loamy soils, but they had their own challenges. And then I came down here and I hear a lot of locals that would tell me you're always three days away from a drought. And I was like, yeah, I get that. And then after being down here a few years, you can go from flooding to a drought in literally three three days because, you know, the sandy soils, the small small particles, it's just not going to have that good water holding capacity. Uh, But it also, you know, it has its positives as well as its its negatives. Uh, You know, people want to talk about, well, it doesn't hold on to the fertilizer. You see a lot of leaching in through the soil. Well, what has a long taproot that can get down into those, those small particles in the soil? Alfalfa. And so now we have figured out ways to benefit uh, some of the physiological factors of these plants by putting them into our environment that initially you would think, why would they grow there? It's real sandy. Now, we're not beach sand like they have in, in some of the, the farms in Florida, uh, but we're somewhat close depending on the, the part of the state you're in. So. And maybe you don't have to worry as much about soil compaction. <laughs> it happens sometimes still, but no, not not near as much. <laughs> yeah. You, one of your interests is and activities has been trying to promote the importance of forages and why forage, what is forage agriculture, number one. number, And I, I've had people confuse what I do with people going out and gathering food. I get that question a lot. I actually get lots of messages on Facebook about where to, you know, I'm into foraging and where do I find this? And I'm like, I I know what cows can eat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not about to give you recommendations on on that weed that's in the field. That's that's not my area. Right. So what is, what are the values of forage agriculture that you'd like to let people know about? Wow, but there's so many. <laughs> you want to start with the, the simple ones? You know, that I have a toddler. Her favorite thing is ice cream, right? So you can't have ice cream without having grass. Right? It's, all, it's all part of a cycle. Um, so my research is systems-based. And, and while I was trained, uh, I guess, specifically in agriculture and agronomy, and I have a degree from crop, in crop science, I was actually cross-trained. And so that's how I actually train my students. I call them crossover kids. And so I'll actually take students that are agronomy trained or animal science trained. And then wherever the deficit is, that's where we beef up the other side. Yeah. Um, (laughs) See what you did there. (laughs) Got to get them in when you can. Um, So we, we, I cross trained my students uh, because the real, the reality is a lot of the things and the answers that we're trying or the questions that we're having, the answers we're trying to get are systems focused. And so you have to have a true understanding of what's happening within the system. So not only uh, what's happening to the plant underground and above ground, but what happens to that animal once it consumes that plant. And so we really work at that plant animal interface. Um, from this, you know, and my involvement in the American Forage and Grassland Council, which I actually started uh, as a student, Byron Slew took me to my first meeting in 2006. Uh, so, yeah, there's a long history there. Uh, but that was the first one I went to. And then I was hooked immediately uh, as a, a student. I went from not really knowing what I was going to do uh, professionally to realizing that there's this whole world, even in agriculture, that people don't talk about. 
you know, and what better place to be than standing in a field with cows and grass? You know, when I get stressed out, that's where I go. I go stand and just look at the cows eating grass. And, you know, you can just get to see the world right there. You just see symmetry and motion and the system. And it's just, it's amazing feeling to be out there and see that. But I didn't know that you could actually get degrees in this stuff. Um, and so, so now, you know, I, I try to train students and, and I think it's very important uh, for me as I talk to, to students, potential students, uh, about the fact that you don't have to singular be focused on just how to grow this one plant or just how to, to work with this one animal or, hey, you have an interest in reproductive efficiency. You know, have you ever thought about going back and seeing what the effects of their nutrition is having on that. And, you know, again, you come back to that plant that's in the field. And so when we start to think about, I guess, like all the things in life, a lot of it can come down to a little piece of dirt. There I say dirt, um, you know, the, to the soil and the plants that are growing in them. And so then you think about the importance of forages that are coming out of that. You know, it's we're feeding our animals they're taking products that we can't use. You know, we can try to cook a kale salad all we want to, but there are lots of things out there that we cannot use. And they turn that into a protein product that we can benefit from. I mean, what is more important than that? Because hmm. I'm a steak eater though. You know, <laughs> if I don't have my steak at least once a week, I'm not happy. Uh, but, you know, what is more important than that whole system? Because they're turning these products that can be useless otherwise into products that now we can efficiently use, you know, as human beings. It's, there's so many important <laughs> forages to me. Well, yeah. So we, I mean, we can talk conservation. We can talk um, the, the integration of livestock into cropping systems. Um, and we need to get our minds broader than, high-income country agriculture. We need to think about the low- and middle-income countries and the role of livestock in food production systems. Um, I'm, I'm becoming more and more excited by what I'm learning from other countries where they're looking at these integrated livestock cropping systems. And the idea that, you know, if we fertilize the grass and grow cattle on that grass and then go into corn, we can produce the same yield of corn as if we had fertilized it, but we produce more beef. So we're sort of, as, as one guest said, we're using the same atoms a couple times um, because of the nature of the grazing animal. When we're properly controlling and, 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 and managing those animals, the nutrients cycle through that system. And so now we can produce more food on the same ground with the same or lower inputs. Plus then we get the, the soil health benefits. Um, and, and so I just, yeah, obviously we're, we're both, what is the term? Forage geeks. Is that right? Is that, <laughs> I'm a fanatic. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a geek. I'm a fanatic. <laughs> Oh, Forge Fanatic. That's right. The alliteration. I'm sorry. Um, you're, no, no, no. You're not a geek. No, no, no. I would never say that. Um, oh, I am. I know. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that you talk about the, the, your philosophy in training graduate students, as well as sort of remembering people that changed, you know, the trajectory of your career. Uh, for me, it was Carl Hovland. For you, it's Byron Slew. Um, and it's always good to acknowledge those people. Um, we, we do come from a lineage that we can trace back. And in some cases, it comes from other countries. I mean, Chuck Dougherty grew up on the South Island. Um, but then I hear from others that some of the influences in these other countries actually came from the U.S. It's just, you know, several steps removed. So these ideas about forage management, uh, nutrient cycling, soil health, conservation, all of these are part of what we do within this thing that we call grazing management, forage agriculture, um, which is part of what makes it 
so interesting because some of the commodity crops, and I know I'm guilty of oversimplifying, but it seems like once you've decided what you're going to grow, okay, <laughs> you pretty much know when you're going to plant it. You pretty much know when you're going to do this, that, and the other thing, and then you're going to harvest it then. And okay, you wait for the rain, whatever, but that's pretty simple compared to what we're doing in a forage system. Oh, very much so. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. We, uh, even here around the research station, you know, people talk about seasons and, well, now I'm in my busy season or I've got to get my writing and planning done at this time because we're going to get back into planning season, uh, you know, and then they kind of ask me and I'm like, forages are 365. Like we are constantly doing something, planning something, evaluating something, grazing it, you know, pulling them off. It, it's a constant and it's a, an ever moving, changing thing. So, you know, we might plant one thing this year and then say, okay, well, we planted that too early or too late. Um, now next year, let's add this and see if that comes back. And so it's a constant moving target, which maybe that's why I like it uh, because no two days are ever the same. No two years are ever the same. Yields are never the same. We can get averages and start to develop what we think our our estimated, you know, expectations should be, uh, but it's always very ever-changing. And there's so many components that when you look at a, a forage livestock system, uh, you know, even with the, the integrated crop livestock work, uh, we're actually uh, starting a project uh, with some of our precision ag specialists here that we're calling the Cotton and Cows Project, and um, where we're taking a field that's been primarily produced uh, for corn, for silage production, we followed that up with brassicas this past year. Uh, we grazed those brassicas. And then now we're going to go in, fix, you know, plant the corn just like we normally would, uh, manage the corn, go back, graze the corn stalks, and then overseed those again. And so now you're starting to see that integration of the, the benefit of the cattle into that system. Uh, and of course, I put it right on the front of the farm uh, because... None of these are new ideas. Again, uh, I actually, I talked to some producers uh, and that's where I get a lot of my, I guess, imaginative de decisions from like, you know, hey, what, what's important? What is it that you need to look at? And then when I talk about, okay, this is what we're going to do. And they're like, yeah, we've been doing that for years. We've just gotten away from it. So, you know, people going in and even grazing corn residues or cotton residues or peanut residues or heaven forbid, feeding peanut hay, you know, things of that nature. Like people have gotten away from those standards that used to be just common practice because we've switched from entities that were very diversified. So, you know, producers had cattle to help manage their land in the off periods and in the off seasons, you know, they would plant legumes before they would plant their crops so that they got that nitrogen benefit. You know, there were, these systems were working. And as we continued to grow and get more singular defined, we started dropping off components. We started taking our fencing down around because if you have more area, you can, you can plant more to the edge of that field and that's more yield and more acreage. And not that one or the other, you know, it's, it's, I'm not trying to put one as a negative side, but it's definitely one of those, you know, the pendulum swing type thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's somewhere in the middle is what that, that best thing is. And so we're hoping that maybe we can get back to some of that middle ground right now. So, yeah, we, we've certainly gone through an era of specialization. And uh, I think we are in a period of maybe reevaluation. Uh, certainly, a recent conversation. Um, well, Joe Bouton talked about when he got to University of Georgia, he looked for bottlenecks. Uh, and, and I'm quite taken with that, that phrase, bottlenecks, and, or maybe it's a word. Is it one word? Bottleneck? Um, and <laughs> thank you. He, um, you know, he said we had toxic tall fescue, <laughs> we had Bermuda grass, we had Bahia grass, and, we, and it was all driven by nickel pound nitrogen. And so that's what led him to focus on novel endophyte tall fescue. Well, non-toxic tall fescue because he had to go through one little uh, bump there. Uh, um, and then the, the white clover and the grazing alfalfas. 
Um, so that I, I was quite taken with with that idea, um, his approach and, and thinking that out. Um, we've mentioned legumes a couple times for people who aren't familiar. Um, why are legumes important? How do they contribute nitrogen when the grass doesn't? So that is one important factor. Um, my daughter would tell you it's because they make pretty flowers. So that's an okay. important factor. We need to be sure that we include that. And yes. she loves that mama works with alfalfa and red clover because they make pretty purple flowers. Uh, no, so the, the positive benefits uh, for legumes, and I think we're still learning uh, what they are, uh, but, you know, you can go back even to, I've read some some old books from ancient times where they would plant crops that would mimic kind of our peanut now or a clover for the nitrogen benefit, even though they didn't understand what was happening. They just knew that after they planted, you know, they planted that, then they planted something else that it grew much better than if it didn't. And what, you know, simply, if you try to describe it in simple terms of what's happening is that these legumes are able to produce their own nitrogen. And so they don't have to use external sources to get that growth benefit that a lot of our grasses need uh, with external nitrogen. And so they, they develop these nodules or these nodes on the plant uh, in the root zone. And then how we benefit from it is once we harvest that crop or graze that crop, that's why grazing is really great for legumes, and remove that top, those nodes start to fall off, and now they are available in that soil environment for those grasses. And so, you know, they're a high-protein source for grazing animals, and then they're also a nitrogen source for the grasses that may be in our mixtures. And so that's why we, re we really try to incorporate legumes as much as possible to the extent possible. You know, there are some environments... We have some soil types here. You're not getting a pH over a five. You're not growing legumes in a pH over a five. So we know that you can incorporate those or in situations where maybe you have a lot of other broadleafs that you need to control. So you have to really think about when you're going to put them in. But we, we tell people use them to the extent possible. And, and in addition to the nitrogen, which itself contributes to feed quality, the digestibility of that plant material that's produced is also higher typically than the grass. Oh, very much so. Uh, just from a recent work where we added the alfalfa into Bermuda grass, uh, we saw that we were running around TDN. I know I'm going to start throwing numbers, uh, but TDN is the total digestible nutrients. So the nutrients that animals are able to utilize, truly digest in their system of about 65%, which is a very good target to go for. Um, you know, pure alfalfa would probably be higher than that, but this is, you know, we're making rocket fuel now, for especially for our southeastern cattle. Uh, and, you know, on average, our crude protein moved from a, an average of a 12 uh, on our Bermuda grass, 12 to 14, depending on your, your timing, to 20. You know, a 20% crude protein, they're never even using all of that. So now you you definitely, just by adding a legume into that mixture, and we see almost the same thing when you add red clover uh, into the mixture as well with that Bermuda grass. So it definitely increases that plane of nutrition for those animals and, and really just kind of bumps things up for them. So 65% TDN in the mix, what would Bermuda grass be? And. Um, very well managed Bermuda grass, uh, harvested kind of on that that threshold time. You can hit to a sixty, um, but and you sixty to sixty five doesn't sound that much, but you know some of these moves are pretty significant uh, when, when you start to look at that. Uh, probably more in the fifty five range. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and you're also doing some work with something called baleage. Yes, yes. Um, so one of the benefits, I guess, in, or challenges, however you want to look at it, in the Southeast, uh, and it kind of coincides with the utilization of alfalfa in this region, uh, but we're able to grow a lot of forage, especially at certain times of the year, because we have average rainfalls that are just crazy when you look at what people get out West. I and mean, so when we talk about our rainfall and our drought years and they're you know, wishing that they had the amount of rain that, that we had. But a lot of it comes at certain times, like in the spring time period, we get a lot of rain, then we hit that summer and we dry out. But with that spring, that's when you get that flush of growth on annual ryegrass or 
uh, your wheat, your rye, oats, any of those products that you would try to put into a dry hay bale package. Uh, and the ability to get three or four days with no rain during that time period, it's just very hard to do. Um, and so we have now increased and encouraged the utilization of baleage technology. So you're making a high moisture hay product and you wrap that product and it's a bale, it's a silage bale. Uh, so you're, you're making it into a product that can be transported uh, and fed effectively, a little more effectively than if you were pulling out of a silage pit. Um, because, you know, in beef production, it's very hard for us to manage, not manage the silage, but, you know, to keep that base of a large silage pit because you don't feed quite as much as you would in a dairy, uh, dairy scenario. You know, you're always going back and putting feed in front of those dairy animals and not so much on the beef side. You know, you feed kind of once a day and you move on. Um, so we have started uh, really encouraging, and a lot of this was with Dr. Dennis Hancock when he was still at UGA, um, but encouraging baleage utilization uh, across the Southeast. And then we've hit a few years, like 2013 and then 2018 were some of our absolute wettest years across the Southeast, um, you know, just on record. And part of that is hurricanes uh, that came through. But, you know, we went into the summer months and we were still getting these rains. And so people couldn't harvest their hay like they normally would harvest. Well, then their hay goes from being harvested every four to five weeks, like you would recommend, to six weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks. And then they finally reached a dry period. Well, all of this Bermuda grass has gotten all of this rain. It's been cloudy, so it doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it. And now it's all this stemmy material. Mm -hmm. But hey, I got it into a hay bale, right? Well, then follow that fall. And we had a lot of incidents of animals that were, as we would say, they're dying with a full stomach uh, because they were just lacking in so much nutrients and it would just impact, you know, compact in that stomach uh, and it just couldn't move. It wouldn't mobilize. Uh, through the system. And so we've used those negative, I guess, uh, experiences as opportunities to really see the benefit because had those producers had Baelish technology at that time, then they could have gotten in, you know, because you can harvest something in 24 hours. Uh, now, a lot of people call it hay in a day. Uh, I like to point out that it is 24 hours. You know, we cut one day and then by the next day, we are getting that package because you do have to allow for some wilting for it to properly occur. But if you'd have had a two-day window, uh, then maybe you could have harvested that, that product. So we're seeing a lot of benefit to baleage production. And we're doing a lot of economic analysis as well to determine, you know, is this worth you going into the expense of doing or, or making this type of a product? Um, but it's very interesting <laughs> to me, at least. Yeah. Well, and so again, you're you're talking about that sort of spring, early summer period growth, very rapid. Operators should not be stocking at that rate, so you're going to have surplus feed. Unlike out in the West or other parts of the world, um, stockpiling well in most places, stockpiling at that time of the year is not a good option because. You, you've got a lot of growth season left and leaving that it just gets lower quality and interferes with regrowth. And so the, the conservation of that feed is necessary. And then you're left with how do you do that in your environment? So um, yeah, uh, lots of places not far away from me, they have to stop um, that they, they bail for a couple hours right before and right after sunup, you know, so that it's it, that the alfalfa isn't so dry that the leaves just blow off. Um, in fact, there are, I I've seen equipment that's designed to put steam onto the crop as it's being baled to try to extend that another couple hours. Um, so we, we all have our challenges, um, too much, too little. 
Um, you were speaking about the the making sure that your students have this breadth of experience. Um, so if somebody comes to you with a extensive animal science, you want to make sure that they get the agronomic or some other um, exposure. Um, so again, I think that's one of the advantages in forage training systems is that we pretty much have to because the the forage is not the saleable product. We're, we're, we're going to produce something that has to then be converted at hopefully a profit. Um, and how do we construct systems that do that? So if, and you mentioned talking to students and perhaps that's something that you get to do frequently, but what what sorts of advice would you give if you had the chance to stand in front of some people who were contemplating what to do, you know, going forward, you know, what, what should I study? What, what sorts of things? I, I mean, I want to make a difference, right? I mean, that's a real thing. We want to make an impact. That's, that's commendable where, um, and I have my, bias, but I'd like to hear your perspective on what you would advise students. Because it strikes me that a lot of times we spend too much time learning little facts and not realizing, well, one person said, half of what I'm going to teach you is wrong. I just don't know which half. And then there's the other bit about how much of that's going to be out of date in how many years and how many careers are you likely to have in your lifetime so with all of that as an introduction and lead in any thoughts on on advising people so this is kind of a loaded question um because and, and you know this about my my personality but uh, i kind of give people brass tacks sometimes you know i, I tell them this is how it is um <laughs> So uh, when I have students that, that come to talk to me, I've, I've had students from all kinds of various backgrounds. And, and like we mentioned earlier, my background was political science, right? I, I could write good journal articles, um, but I didn't know how to write anything scientific. Uh, but I had a, an ag background, so I could kind of rely on that a little bit to, to get me started into an, a master's degree. Uh, so, you know, I don't so much look at what their degree is in, but maybe how well they did with certain classes, you know, because you know that they're going to be a challenge. And so a lot of people come to me hesitant because I am an animal science program and they say, you know, I don't, I don't have any animal science classes. Well, that's okay. We can, we can teach you about the animal science. And so as I explained to students that undergraduate research or undergraduate, I guess, education uh, teaches you how to learn things. Right. You, you kind of learn that it's at K through 12, but then you're, you're putting it into practice as an undergrad. And so even in your ag classes, there's still a lot of learn and regurgitate. You know, you learn this fact and then you give this fact back. Uh, and so as long as you can get the facts right, you maybe don't have to apply them anywhere. So when you go into a master's program, now you get to apply those. And then you start to see that maybe some of those facts aren't always facts, that maybe they're situations. And so you start to question and you're allowed to question. You know, as a master's student, you're not just supposed to accept that what I tell you is fact, because as we know in research, things change so much. And, and things that have, may have been facts a long ago, you know, like alfalfa couldn't grow somewhere could potentially change just because of new information or new environmental factors or lots of other things that can be impacting. And so when a student comes into a master's program, uh, what I ask them first is, what are your goals? And those will change. I mean, mine have changed multiple times throughout my life. I've had my dream job twice now. You know, how, how does that happen, right? Um, but, you know, your, the goals will change, but kind of where do you want to go? If they want to be an extension, they want to help producers on the ground and they, they want to be the person that the people in the county come to for a multitude of answers. Well, you need to make sure that your training doesn't just tell them the cuts of meat on a beef cow. You know, you need to be sure that they also know everything from cows to cotton and corn and, and all of those aspects. And so if we know that up front, then we can tailor that training to what your goals are. Uh, but I also have lots of students that come in and they say, I want to get a PhD. And I say, why? 
why would you want to do that? <laughs> but, um, but the reality is, and I, I, I explained to most students to go and get a master's degree and then decide if you still want to go and get a PhD. Because while my master's degree provides you more specialization, a PhD makes you super specialized. And if you don't want to work in academia, the job market is not phenomenal for PhDs. Now, if you know what you want to do, if you want to go work for a seed company, if you want to be a plant breeder, if you and you have that target and you can make the right connections, okay, that can work out. But just to go get a PhD, to get a PhD may not be that best option. And people find it very odd that a associate now professor um, that works in academia would discourage getting a PhD. And I'm not discouraging it, but I graduated in the height of the first now, uh, most recent economic depression, right? I graduated in 2010 with a degree and was kind of a crossover degree in crop science, but I was trained in animal and forage agriculture. And there were lots of forage jobs when I started. You know, in 2007, there were lots of retirement and lots of potential jobs coming. And then, 2008, we have an economic crash. And in 2010, when I graduate, there are no jobs. Okay. There are no jobs. And had I stopped at a master's degree, because I applied for a lot of jobs that were master's level jobs, but those companies said, hey, it's great, but you have a PhD. And when the economy turns around, we won't be able to keep you. So we're going to go ahead and hire this person that's a master's level. And so I let people know that, like, I'm not trying to discourage getting a PhD, but the path, even though, and a lot of people see that I grew up on a cattle farm and, you know, I, I had a beef background and now I work in beef and that it was a straight road and it's not, it's not a straight road. And so, you know, if you want it, I, I tell people all the time, go and get that degree. Uh, but the other thing is I try to take some of these students that aren't sure. Like I've had people that were hard, hardcore animal science is the only way to go. And that's what I want to do. And I want to, you know, do all this stuff with cows. And I say, okay, come work with me. We cut grass with scissors. <laughs> and, and I do. And, and that's the first thing. That's what my technician, that's what all of my former students tell people. If you, if you like cutting grass with scissors, go work with her, you know, because even in animal agriculture, you know, I would say maybe with the exception of feedlot or dairy systems where you are feeding an animal regularly every day. But if you work in animal agriculture with grazing systems, you can see a lot of cows, but you don't touch a lot of cows. You know, we, we actually work with more in research because we weigh them a lot, but there's not a lot of cow work to be done because you're working on the system. So, you know, I, I tell people all the time, like, we have fun. Forage people are happy people. And so we, we have a lot of fun. But it's, it's just a different way to really to look at things. Because a lot of us in undergrad, you're very singular trained. And nobody even realizes that jobs like what we do exist. That you can get paid to play with cows and grass and help producers find applicable answers to their problems. I mean, that's, that, there's my impact statement, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. I told and you it was a loaded question. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know, I'll just keep pitching them and you can swing or not, you know. Um, so what, if, if somebody wanted, what, what are resources you'd suggest for people who want to learn more about forages but, you know, they're not in college. They're not even necessarily in agriculture, but they just like to learn more about this admittedly most fascinating of topics. Um. <laughs> um, so, so my go-to resource for everybody is uh, Southern Forages. Um, you know, just because even if you're not in agriculture, um, you can learn a lot from that book just thinking about things growing on the side of the road. You know, you, you see this flower with a white top that is, you know, it's pretty. It's everywhere right now. You know, white clover. Well, now you can learn a whole bunch about the benefits of white clover just by reading this book that you would think is a textbook, but it's not. It's very much written for 
the general public and producers to, to pick up and utilize and, and actually breed. So I always I steer everybody to that as a starting point uh, for just learning about forage agriculture or forages in general. Um, the other resources for my generation, obviously, uh, we, we use a lot of social media. And so um, I try to use my social media page as an opportunity to just show people what's happening in the field. Uh, and so, you know, we do have some resources, but we have, uh, I've developed the Better Grazing Program Southern Location down here in Tifton. And I'm using this area as a place uh, to be kind of a demonstration and research location. And it has different like fencing materials, uh, different types of fence posts, something different than just your painted T-post and barbed wire or woven wire fence. Uh, you know, we, we have different electricity, different boxes that we use, watering systems. And so, you know, there are a lot of us out here, uh, but people just, I guess, we're best kept secret. Uh, and, and a lot of us are real available just to, to hit us up and ask questions. You know, that's what we're here for uh, as resources. Obviously, we have extension uh, web pages uh, in, in Georgia. There's georgiaforages.com, uh, the ugabeefteam.com, and I'm very active with both the beef and forage teams and UGA extension. Um, and then the first and foremost, if, if, if you're not wanting to know more than just reading out of a book, uh, go to your county extension office and start asking those. That's a, an active resource. And we're very fortunate within the state of Georgia that we still have that county-based system. And so there is that person within the county. Uh, and I think they enjoy answering questions about as much as, as we do. Um, so uh, they, they kind of wait to see what the next thing is and, and come in and have a conversation with them. And, and I think that's a great place to, to really start. And the title Southern Forages shouldn't throw people, that, that that's a book that has very wide audience across the United States and other countries. Oh, yes. There, there are international versions of that book. It is very, very widely done. And I actually have a copy of every series now. <laughs> yes, that has been a life goal. Uh, and I have them and I have most of them are signed by all the authors. So I've been Next. very fortunate uh, to be a, a forage child uh, of, of these great forage predecessors. Yeah, and and that's something that we mentioned earlier is this this we are in a chain of people who have been doing this kind of work and 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 that includes research you know public private industry and and now what's exciting to me is I'm extending my network to international um, these, these issues are, are very much global in their impact. And, um, another reason for me to be excited, uh, be a forage fanatic. Thank you very much. Um, so I've been asking you a bunch of questions. It's coming on dinner time in your part of the, sorry, it is dinner or is it right, supper? It's dinner. Oh, or it's dinner. Either one. Okay. <laughs> Um, oh, you're very progressive. Um, it could be. <laughs> um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. If you have any to ask me, it's fair to turn the tables. Um, otherwise, I'll say thank you. And anything that I can do to help you in your program, please don't hesitate to ask. Oh, of course. I, I always appreciate your support. And uh you know, and there's there's a lot, and I don't want to pull an age thing here, okay? <laughs> but uh, there there's a lot of, uh, as we call them, uh, academic brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, because I came through UK, you came through UK. Uh, you know, I had uh, Glenn Aiken and, and Chuck Doherty as as my advisors at the time, and I know that you had some some time with uh, Dr. Doherty as well. Um, but I really appreciate uh, all of those that have paved the path. Uh, for the work that we're getting to do and continue to do. Um, I think one of the things that um, is, I guess, promising, but also kind of disheartening is that we see, you know, even though I'm trying to push out uh, forage graduate students, is that we start to see this shrinking of forage professionals. Uh, and so I'm hoping that we continue to see that this, this area grows as we uh, really encourage and, and let people know about the importance of forages uh, across the board. And, you know, we talked about my professional side, but, you know, I'm also a mom and and I have my daughter that she loves to go out and, and she says, that's mama's alfalfa or 
or Miss Shawnee, who's my technician, she does everything. So she's, <laughs> she, she, that's always Miss Shawnee's cows and Miss Shawnee's alfalfa. Uh, but, you know, I try to think about what I do uh, and, and translate that, not as a researcher, uh, but, you know, also as a mother and then someone that is concerned about the health aspects and, and all of these factors. And so I'm just very appreciative that you are creating avenues uh, for conversations to, to, to occur and connect. And so maybe that's not so much a question to you, uh, but, you know, I appreciate the effort that, that you are putting in because we always talk about how we need to have the conversation, but we never have the conversation. Uh, and so you're definitely creating that with the herd mates. Uh, and I always have lots of questions for you, Peter, but I will leave those for later when we're not recording. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so thank um, you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been my pleasure.